All right. Well, this morning I'm excited. We're going to begin a brand new sermon series today entitled Blessed. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be studying over the next four weeks uh, what is called the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. And the Beatitudes is an interesting section of Scripture uh, because it comes from Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of the largest discourses that Jesus gives. It's one of those times that he just kind of sits down and he just unloads some of the most amazing truth you can ever hear. And what's exciting about the Beatitudes is I think, as we're going to see together through this study, that God is literally establishing something. I believe he's establishing what I just want to call a spiritual standard. So if you're a note taker, uh, you can look on that first point on your outline. And so here it is. The Beatitudes give us a spiritual standard. A moral code tells us which lines not to cross, but a spiritual standard defines the life that we are called to live. And, and I, I want to just encourage you in something today. I want to encourage you in the realization that Christianity is not about what I don't do. A lot of times when you hear people talk about their Christianity, they define what it means for them to be a Christian. They'll say stuff like this, well, because I'm a Christian, you know, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with those who do. That's a little saying. That was supposed to be funnier than it was. Thank you. When you listen to people talk about their Christianity, sometimes they talk about what they don't do. And how many of you know it's good that we have a moral code? It's good that there's a moral law. It's good that there are laws that say don't do this and don't do that. The Ten Commandments is a moral code. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't, don't covet. Don't, don't do all these things. But I'm so thankful that Jesus has called us to something higher because Christianity is not just about not doing the wrong things. Christianity is actually about pursuing the right things. It's about being called up. And what I love about Jesus is that Jesus calls us up higher. He calls us to a standard of living that is above anything that we could ever imagine in this world. And the standard of God is always higher than the standard of this world. And what is amazing about that standard is not only does it call us higher, but it actually empowers us to step into some things that we could never step into if we were living by the world's standards. The word repent in the English is made up of two words, re and pent. And what I love about the English translation of the word repent, it literally means this. Re means return. Pent means high place. That's why the penthouse is always on the top floor. So literally when Jesus says repent, the English translation of Jesus' repentance is simply this. You need to return to the high place. Right? You need to stop living by the world's standards and you need to start living by God's standards because there is a blessing of God that comes on the hearts of people who choose to live their life God's way. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to start in verse 1. The Bible says this, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. Look at that next point on your outline. The kingdom of God is upside down and backwards. That's something we talk a lot about here at Liberty Church, how that God's way of living life is exactly the opposite of the way the world has called us to live. Jesus literally flips the coin and declares a blessing over those who choose to live life by his standards. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Jesus declares eight blessings over those who are willing to live their life according to God's standard of righteousness. And what's interesting is that what Jesus calls blessed is what most of us would normally call curse. Think about this upside down backwards mentality. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. We don't usually get real excited about poverty around here, do we? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Think about that. If you're mourning, it probably means your heart's been broken. He says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted, who are reviled who are made false accusations and who are threatened and who are even, even, even taken to a point of death because of their faith in Christ. And when you think about those things, you think about being poor or being, being even meek, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. How many of you know that in our world today, meek and mercy are not too high standards on the world standard system today? As a matter of fact, they say tough. They say be tough and be controlling and be manipulative. And you take what you want. And if somebody won't give it to you, you take it anyway. But that's not how Jesus lives. That's not how he rolls in this thing called Christianity. That's definitely not the life that he's calling us to live. And if you live according to the world's standards, well, guess what happens? You'll get the world's reward. But if you live according to God's standards, you'll get God's reward. And what's awesome about what Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes, just one simple thing, is he unlocks some amazing things to us. Let me give you a scripture. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. It's not on the screen, but you ought to write it down. Proverbs 10, verse 22. I want you to listen to this scripture. It says, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. What I love about the blessing of God, what I love about what Jesus is teaching us in the Beatitudes is he is unlocking how do we live, how do we access this heavenly wealth? How do we tap in to the blessing of God? The Bible says it makes us rich and adds no sorrow with it. And that last little phrase is really important because think about the blessing of the world. You can, you can be rich and powerful and famous, and your marriage can fall apart. And your kids can be addicted to drugs. And you can battle with depression and suicide until the day you die. Because the blessing of the world many times brings sorrow with it. The blessing of the world, the promotion, the success, the fame, the fortune. Many people sell their souls for the sake of a little worldly success. And the pain and the grief and the heartache that follows many times is not really hard to see. From a distance, we look at famous people and we say, man, they got it all together. But when the spotlight gets zoomed in on them, isn't it amazing? How in the midst of their fame and their fortune and their success, they're just broken, hurting people who need the hope of the gospel. Because the success of this world does not produce the rewards of heaven. But the blessing of God makes you rich. It, 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 it enriches your life. When God blesses you, guess what happens? When he blesses you financially, it enriches you relationally. When he blesses you relationally, it, 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 when he blesses you relationally, it also enriches your life occupationally. 
And all of a sudden, you begin to see that the blessing of God on your life has this amazing trickle effect that begins to enrich every aspect of your life. You guys remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Everywhere Joseph went, God blessed him. And everything that Joseph put his hand to, God enriched the lives of everybody that was connected to him. Potiphar's house prospered because Joseph was blessed. Because the blessing of the Lord makes you rich and adds no sorrow with it. Look at that next point. So the word blessed in the Greek literally means this. It means to be supremely blessed. It means to be favored. It means to be happy. It means to be joyful. Some of our uh, translations, maybe an NLT and some of your uh, NIV or ESV translations actually interpret Matthew 5 and they'll say happy are the poor in spirit and happy are those who mourn and happy are the meek and happy are the merciful. I like the word blessed because I believe it gives us a better picture of what Jesus is really talking about. He's not just talking about emotional happiness. He's not just talking about you're going to feel good about yourself if you do these things. He's talking about the fact that our joy and our happiness is rooted with the fact that we're living under the blessing and favor of God. How many know God can do more in a moment of favor than you can do in a lifetime of labor? He can open a door. He can defeat an enemy. He can make a way, right? He can heal your daughter and raise her up in a moment. Because that's the blessing and that's the favor of the Lord upon our lives. And then in, in Matthew 5, in the, in, the Deuteron, in, the, in the Beatitudes, Jesus declares a special blessing over each one of these Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes, by the way, is what we use to describe Matthew chapter 5 there. And literally it simply means this. The word Beatitudes simply means it means the supreme blessing. How many of you can honestly say today that you believe in your heart God wants you to be blessed? Anybody believe that today? If you don't believe that today, I hope that you walk out of here today believing that God wants you to be blessed. He's for you and he's not against you. God is not trying to curse you. God is trying to bless you. Amen. And he's trying to release his blessing over your life so you can walk in the life he's called you to live. And so you can be a part of what he wants to do in the earth. Because we're living in amazing times where we get to be a part of the kingdom of God. Look at that next point. Let's go ahead and kind of break down. Let's talk about that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to use the phrase spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty, I believe, is simply this. I believe it is dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. When I am spiritually poor, I'm living in a place of dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. I am looking to Him. See, the poor in spirit realize, listen to this, we realize that we must do our part, but if God doesn't do His part, it just won't work. How many know that you have a part to play? Come on, somebody. You have a part to play in what God wants to do in your life. The Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. you got to sow the right seed. Right? you got to walk in forgiveness and grace. If you don't, you'll poison your soul. Come on, somebody. You've got a part to play, right? You've got to be diligent. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to be determined. You've got to be willing to follow after the path that God has called you to live in. But at the end of the day, I hope that you already know this. This is what I hope you know. I hope you already know that there are many, many things that you can do, but there are some things that only God can do. 
And we've got to be willing to do our part, but we also have got to recognize that if God doesn't his, do his part, we're going to come short of the glory of God. There is my part to play. We are laborers together with God, and I've got to be willing to do the part that God's called me to play. But I've also got to live in a place of dependency and expectancy that says, God, I'm looking to you. And I'm expecting you to do what I can't do. And even more than that, God, I'm expecting you to do what you've already promised and said you would do. Because you're my healer, you're my deliverer, you're my provider, you're my protector, you're my God. And I'm looking to you. Now let me just interject something here real quick. Spiritual poverty is not laziness. I've met a lot of Christians along my little journey of faith, and every now and then I'll encounter somebody that kind of has this whatever, whatever mentality. You know, they'll just say, well, you know, whatever happens, happens, and it must be the will of God because it happened. I want to tell you something. That's spiritual laziness. You have a part to play. You have a choice to make. You have a decision to use to line yourself up with the will of God. Whatever happens that happens is not necessarily always the will of God. Sometimes it's the will of the enemy. Sometimes it's the will of man. Sometimes it's the result of rebellion and pride and jealousy and envy and strife and bitterness and chaos and confusion. Now God can take all things and work it together for your good because he loves you. And you've been called according to his purpose. But the realization is simply this. We have a part to play. I heard a quote years ago, and I love it. I've used it many times. A gentleman simply made this statement. He said, if you don't work, then nothing in your life will. <laughs> if you don't work, nothing in your life will work, right? You have got to be engaged. You've got to do your part. You've got to participate with God. That's so important. So we recognize that spiritual poverty is not laziness. It is a dependency and it is an expectancy upon the Lord. Now, many of you know that Kayla and I have been officially uh, transitioned into being grandparents. And we're really loving it, by the way. And uh, Jude is now our youngest. He's five months old. Is that correct? So Jude the dude, we call him Jude the dude. Jude the dude's five months old. And as I was thinking about our children and our grandchildren, the Holy Spirit just kind of made this little statement to me. He said, Keith, do you realize, let's talk about Jude for a minute. He said, do you realize that Jude is 100% dependent upon his parents? He's 100% dependent upon the people that love and care about him. If he's hungry, they got to feed him. If he's dirty with a, with a diaper, they got to change him. If he wants to go from one room in the house to another room in the house, somebody's got to pick him up and tote him. <laughs> I mean, he is 100% totally dependent upon them. And then he said this, and this kind of just kind of brought a little perspective to me. He said, not only are our children dependent upon us, he said, but they actually expect us to meet their needs. Jude can't talk yet, so he cries, right? <laughs> And so when something's wrong, he cries. And when he cries, that's his little alarm saying, hey, something's wrong over here. I, I need food. I need clothing. I need something, right? Somebody take care of me, please. And all of a sudden, when he cries, guess what? He actually expects his mom and dad to get up and do something. He expects them to feed him when he's hungry. He expects them to clothe him when he's cold. They, he expects them to change him when his diaper's dirty. Why? It, it's not because this is what the Holy Spirit said. He said, Keith, a child that is a little child, we're not talking teenagers and grown adults. He said, a little baby child, when that child has an expectation for its parents to meet its needs, it's not because the child is spoiled. It's because his parents are good. 
Because we all know, right, if, if you know somebody that's not feeding and clothing and taking care of their baby, we say that's a bad parent. That's not a good parent. And if they're not feeding and clothing and taking care of their baby, we actually call somebody and say, hey, you need to do something because that baby is being neglected. That baby is being overlooked. That baby is not being taken care of. See, that baby has a built-in dependency and a built-in expectancy that says, I'm looking to you and I'm actually believing that you are going to meet my needs. Not because I'm a spoiled brat, but because you're a good parent. And how many of you know we got a good, good father? And he wants us to live in a place of dependency and expectancy. He wants us to live in a place where we look to him, that we recognize there's things I've got to do, but God, there's things that only you can do. And I'm going to do my part, but God, I'm going to depend on you. And not only depend on you, God, I'm going to actually expect you to do the things you said you would do because you're a good, good father. Can I get an amen from somebody today? So look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. There's a great story in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's about King Jehoshaphat and the children of Israel. And uh, three enemy armies have allied together. And they're about to attack King Jehoshaphat and the nation of Israel. And we see an amazing portrait here in Scripture of what I believe spiritual poverty or blessed are the poor in spirit really looks like. We get to see a picture of dependency and expectancy as Jehoshaphat looks to the Lord. Look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. It says, Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord, and he prayed. And he prayed. He stood before the people. He stood before the Lord. He came before the temple. He came to the house of God, and he prayed. And look how he prayed. He said, O Lord God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven, and you are the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you are powerful, and you are mighty, and no one can stand against you. Let me just say something. That's a good way to start your prayer. <laughs> I think prayer ought to start with a declaration of who God is. I think we ought to start our prayers with not how big our problems are, but how big our God is. Come on, somebody. Because all of a sudden it puts us in a place of expectancy, in a place of faith where we begin to acknowledge that God, this may be bigger than me, but it's not bigger than you. You're the ruler over all the earth and no one God can stand before you. Look at that next verse. He says, oh our God, verse 7, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? And your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. And they said, whenever we're faced with any calamity such as war or plague or famine, we can come and stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. And we can cry out to you to save us. And you will hear us and you will rescue us. Did you see that? Do you see that there was a dependency? God, we're going to cry out to you. But there was also an expectancy. God, when we cry out to you, guess what? Not only are you going to hear but you're going to rescue. And that's what it means to be spiritually poor. That's what it means to operate in spiritual poverty. It means I live out of this place of dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. Dependency creates humility. And expectancy creates faith. And when there's humility and faith, let me just tell you something. There is nothing that cannot be accomplished in the kingdom of God. There's nothing God can't do. When we come before him, spiritually poor. Look at that next verse, verse 10. 
He says, and now see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You would not let our ancestors invade those nations when Israel left Egypt. So we went around them and did not destroy them. Now see how they have rewarded us, for they have come to throw us out of your land. I love that little phrase right there. They've come to throw us out of your land. God, look what he says. Out of your land, which you gave us as an inheritance. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, in the fullness thereof. And how many of you know, I believe that God's given Arab Alabama and Holly Pond to Liberty Church. Come on, somebody. He's given us this land. And I think we ought to be bold enough to say, devil, you're not going to take this territory. You're not going to have this city. You're not going to have one soul, one family, one person is going to die separated from God. We're going to do all we can do to take dominion over this land. I'm telling you, God's fighting for some territory, and he's fighting through us. And blessed are the poor in spirit because they understand that there is a dependency, but there is an expectancy that comes when we come before the Lord with a humble heart that says, God, I believe you've given us this land. We were praying with a couple just a few minutes ago, and Kelly said, you got to fight for your family. How many know we need to fight for our community? We need to fight for our city. We need to fight for our state. We need to fight for our nation. And we need to fight for the nations of the world. Come on, somebody. And for those of you watching us all over the world today, we love you. And I want you to know Liberty Church is fighting for you. We're not going to sit by and let the world run to hell in a handbasket. Come on, somebody. We're going to do our part. And we're going to look to God and depend on Him to do what we can't do. Amen? And we're going to be poised and we're going to be ready to see the harvest of his glory. Look at that next verse, verse 12. He says, oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. That's dependency. And we do not know what to do. That's dependency. But look at that next verse. But we are looking to you for help. God, we don't know what to do, but we're looking to you. You ever been there? <laughs> you ever been in those places where you didn't know what to do? Man, I've been there. Been there more times than I wish to count. There are those times when you just don't know what to do. You don't know which way to turn. You don't know what decision to make. But here's the good news. When you live in a place of spiritual poverty, you live in a place of dependency that acknowledges that God is great and that we don't know what to do. But God, we live in a place of expectancy that says we're looking to you. And our eyes are on you. And you're not going to leave us and you're not going to abandon us and you're not going to forsake us. Because we are your children. And as Cindy shared, when every door seems to be slamming in your face, God is still at work. Come on, somebody. He's got a better plan. How many of you know better than a kidney transplant is a healed kidney? Come on, somebody. God's got a plan. Look at that next point on your outline. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen to what the scripture says here. It's just a quote direct, directly from Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. Here's the blessing. What is the blessing that God pours out upon those who are poor in spirit? Here it is. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Look at that next part. Spiritual poverty makes you a partaker in the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom comes and his will is done in your life because you live in a place of dependency and expectancy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means I'm now a partaker because of my dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. 
I get to partake of his kingdom. What's his kingdom? It's the king's dominion. It's his dominion. It's his power. It's his provision. It's his protection. Jesus didn't come to take sides, guys. He came to take over. Come on. Dominion. He came to take over. Dominion. There's only one king, King Jesus. There's only one Lord, and he is Lord of all. And all of a sudden, through our poverty of spirit, through a dependency and an expectancy upon the Lord, when we resist pride and arrogance, which is the world's way of dealing with life, and we become humble and expectant, God says, you can partake of my kingdom. And all of a sudden, my dominion will come, and my power will come, and my provision will come, and my protection will come, and I will show up and show out. And the prayer that he taught us to pray, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in That becomes a reality in our lives. That is the blessing of being poor in spirit. That is the blessing of living in dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. Holy Spirit kind of quickened a couple thoughts to me. I want to share with you. He said the currency of spiritual poverty. Think about this. The currency of spiritual poverty is prayer, praise, and obedience. And this is what he said to me. He said, Keith, when you're at the end of your rope, you're not broke. You're blessed. When you're at the end of your rope, you're not broke. You're blessed. Because you have prayer, praise, and obedience. How many know prayer, praise, and obedience doesn't cost you anything other than the willingness to do it? You can pray, and you can praise, and you can obey no matter what's going on in your life. On the good days, on the bad days, on the wonderful days, and on the worst days, you're never broke. You're actually always blessed because you can always pray, you can always praise, and you can always obey God. And when we do those things, we spend that spiritual currency. And guess what happens? We get to partake of kingdom authority. And all that he has becomes manifested in our lives as we live in prayer, praise, and obedience, which is dependency and expectancy upon the Lord. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 13. Y'all still with me? Everybody good for a few more minutes? Y'all all right? It says, all the men of Judah, let's look what happened after they prayed. All the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. All the men of Judah. How many know all the men ought to stand up? Come on, somebody. Ain't that right, Chris? All the men. All the men ought to stand up. And all the men, the Bible says, look what it says. All the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. And his name was Jezreel. The son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, a Levite who was a descendant of Asaph. And he said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. And you will find them coming through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens to the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. And King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground. All the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Look at verse 22. 
They've taken their stations. They're now marching to the battlefield. It's the next day. They've heard the word of the Lord. They're now engaging in obedience to God, and they begin to sing praises to the Lord. Look what it says. And the very moment they begin to sing and give praise to the Lord, God calls the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. And the armies of Moab and Ammon turned against the, their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. And after they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground. As far as they could see, not a single one of the enemy had escaped. And King Jehoshaphat and his men went out, into, went out to gather the plunder, and they found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. And on the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked God there, and it is still called the Valley of Blessing today. Let me tell you something. There's a Valley of Blessing with your name on it. There's a valley of blessing with your name on Look at that last point on your outline. Prayer is dependency. When they prayed, they acknowledged their dependency on the Lord. God spoke to me years ago. He said, Keith, he said, prayerlessness is pridefulness. Prayerlessness is pridefulness. And he began to show me years ago, and he reminds me of that pretty consistent in my life. Anytime I start to march on without prayer. Anytime I try to tackle something, well, you know, Lord, I've done this a thousand times. I think I can do it a thousand and one. <laughs> and you know, I've learned, I've learned that every day I need to commit my day to the Lord. Every day I need to commit my day to the Lord. Every day I need to commit my day to the Lord. Before I tackle one task, before I return one email, before I engage in one conversation, before I do the thing I've been doing for 29 years as a pastor of Liberty Church, I've got to do one thing. And that one thing that I have to do before I do anything is I have to pray. I have to commit my day to the Lord. Prayerlessness is pridefulness. Because the fact that I don't even think to pray about it means that I think I've already got it. Prayer is dependency. Praise before anything happens. Think about this. Praise before anything happens is expectancy. They praised God before the victory. They praised God before they saw the army. They praised God before the victory ever came, before the breakthrough ever came, before the deliverance ever came. They praised God before they ever gathered the first spoil from the, from the army. They praised Him in advance. That's expectancy. That's faith. When you praise God after the victory comes, that's called thanksgiving. Thank you for what you did, God. When you praise God before the victory comes, that's called faith. <laughs> and in faith, they praised Him. Before the victory came, before the deliverance came, all they knew, they could have been marching to their own funeral. But they were going to march in faith. Come on, somebody. Their prayer acknowledged God as their source. Their obedience positioned them to receive what God had for them. I want to talk about that for a second. Their obedience positioned them. They prayed, and guess what happened when they prayed? They got a word from God. I, I can testify 99% of the time in my life, when I pray, 
God gives me a word. Sometimes he gives a word specifically to me. Sometimes I get a word from scripture. Sometimes I get a word from a song. Sometimes he'll have somebody else give me a word. And sometimes he'll even speak through the devil. You ever got a word from a donkey? Balaam did. I mean, I've got some strange words where I knew I was watching something and somebody meant it for evil and God said, there's a lesson there. You need to hear what they just said. I found out that when I pray in acknowledging God that you are the source of every good and perfect gift in my life, God will give me a word. And when you get a word, the next step is your obedience. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me this morning. He said, Keith, there are going to be people there today and people watching online. They're one act of obedience from their breakthrough. You've been praying and God has spoken, but you still haven't done the thing God said to do. It was their obedience that positioned them in the place to get the victory that God had for them. If they would have stayed in the camp, the battle would not have been won. But they took their position on the battlefield as an act of obedience to God, and the Lord showed up. We've got to recognize the importance of obedience. Prayer produces many times a word and is that word that gives us an opportunity to obey what God is saying. And then last but not least, they praised him, right? They positioned themselves and then they praised and their praise propelled them to a place of victory over their enemies. Matthew 5 verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to give you one more scripture and we're going to wrap up with this today. 1 Peter 4 7 and 8 says this, it says, the end of the world is coming soon. That's a sobering scripture. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. And most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. As, as about four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago in my quiet time, I read 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. And the Lord has just literally been hammering that word in my heart. For the last four to five weeks. And then as I was preparing this message and God began to download this idea behind being dependent and expectant and really the importance of prayer creating dependency, obedience, positioning us, and praise creating an expectancy of faith that brings in what God wants to do. The Lord just took me back to the scripture. I mean, it's not left me for about four or five weeks. The end of the world is at hand. And I, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Peter said. Here, here is God's instructions for the end of the world. Let me tell you what he didn't say. He did not say the end of the world is at hand, so stockpile food and buy all the ammunition you can. Now, I'm not against stockpiling food, and I'm not against ammunition. But if that is your only response to the end of the world, you're following the world standard, not God's. Jesus said, or God said through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Peter, the end of the world is at hand. So this is what I want you to do, Peter. Be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Why? Because at the end of the world, how many of you know the Bible says, when the end of the world comes, the end of the world also brings an end time harvest. 
There is a move of God waiting to break out on the earth. There is a harvest of souls that are headed to hell that Jesus wants to redeem before he closes the chapter on this planet and ushers us into eternity. And so this is what he says to the church. The end of the world is at hand. So be earnest and disciplined in your prayers because I want to position you to receive the harvest. I want to position you to be ready to receive the souls that are going to be saved as we step into the last days. See, the only problem I have with stockpiling food and ammunition is it almost sounds like the opposite of engaging the world. And it sounds like I'm going to keep the world away from me. But Jesus said, God said, the Holy Spirit said, at the end of the world, you get all the food and all the ammunition you want, but don't stop there. Be disciplined and earnest in your prayer because there's an end time harvest and you're not going to reap the harvest hiding behind your walls with your guns and your food. You're going to reap the harvest when you position yourself in a world called in a world engulfed in darkness so you can shine as a glorious light so that people can find hope and life in Jesus. And then he says, look at that last verse. And then he says, and most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sin. So for about four or five weeks, I've been talking to Kelly about this. So we're just going to do something. How about that? Is that all right? So we're going to begin to have a Saturday morning, 9 a.m. monthly time of earnest, disciplined, focused prayer. Driven by a love for God and a love for people. So that we can be positioned to reach the harvest that God wants to bring. So November the 20th, just a couple weeks away, on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, I want to invite you all to join me. Let me tell you some good news. I'll pray all by myself. But I would love for you to be here. And we're going to come in for one hour. We're going to start on time and we're going to end on time. And we're going to have earnest, disciplined, focused prayer. I'm going to have a specific things that the Holy Spirit's already showed me. And then I'm going to begin to incorporate some of the great prayer warriors and intercessors we have in our church to begin to bring clarity as we are disciplined and focused in our prayers. Because when we pray, God speaks. And when God speaks, we can obey. And as we obey, we are positioned to see the victory that our praise is going to bring as souls are going to be saved and lives are going to be changed. I don't want to be a church. I want to be the church that's positioned to receive the harvest. How about you? I don't want to be a church that just shows up on Sunday. I want to be the church that reaches out into a world and raises people up in their full potential in Christ because we're prayed up and we're obedient and with expectation we're praising God in advance for what He's already going to do. I love you guys. I love you so much. One of my greatest joys in my life is to be able to call myself, Kelly and I, your pastors. 
and I want to lead you well. And I believe God's calling us to this. And I want to invite you to join. Amen. Let's just bow our heads today. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're sitting in this room today, and you realize, you know what, Pastor Keith, I'm not ready for the end of the world. If Jesus were to come today, I wouldn't be ready to meet him because I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. Jesus called it being born again. It's a supernatural thing. Jesus said you're not born again by the will of man, but by the will of God. It's, it's the result of faith. It's, it's that spiritual poverty. It's coming to that place that says, I realize, God, I can't save myself. And I'm totally dependent on you. But with faith, I'm looking to you to save me. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again on the third day, and today I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to receive that gift of eternal life. And I want to give you lordship over my life. I want to follow you. Whether you're here in person today or whether you're watching online, I believe the Holy Spirit is dealing with people this morning. I believe this is your moment. This is your hour. This is your time. And if that's you this morning, you say, Pastor Keith, I've never been saved, but today I want to accept Christ. I want to give Jesus, Lordship over me, and I want to be born again. If that's you, just raise your hand. Just all over this building, just a simple act of faith. I just want to lift my hand up today in faith. Today, I want to be born again. If you're watching online, just hit that little hand emoji or type in that chat box. I'm raising my hand. We want to pray with you. God loves you. This is your moment. This is your hour. The end of the world is coming soon. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that. But Jesus, Jesus died so you could live. So let's just pray this prayer together. All of you in the room here today, let's say it out loud. If you're watching online and you raised your hand, I want to pray this with you this morning. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to challenge you. Let's be poor in spirit. Let's refuse to allow pride and arrogance to keep us from being dependent and expectant upon the Lord. Let's not live in arrogance and high-mindedness and thinks we got this. Lord, we, we don't got this, God. We need you. We need you, and we look to you because we believe you care. You're a good father, and you love us. So I want to challenge you as a Christian today. Let's embrace what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you raised your hand, let's just pray this prayer together. Everybody in the room with me, let's say it out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Rose again on the third day. I confess that I'm a sinner. And I ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart and my life and be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise today. We love you guys. God bless you. If you're new to Liberty today, we're so glad you're here. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Come back and see us and have a blessed day in the Lord. Don't forget chocolate chunk cookies in the cafe. Stop by and get you some on your way out today. We love you. Have a blessed day in the Lord.